You're listening to the Data Point Podcast, brought to you by The Hindu. I'm your host, Sonika Loganathan. Earlier this month, the Supreme Court passed a ruling that allows the court to grant divorce in cases of what it termed irretrievable breakdown of marriage. The decision was made in line with the premise of Article 142.1 of the Constitution, which states that there should be complete justice in any cause or matter. There are several grounds for divorce in India's marriage acts, but until now, the irretrievable breakdown of marriage was not one of them. This ruling now means that couples who want to end their marriage without blaming their spouse for something like adultery or abuse can do so. But is it all as simple as it seems? Joining me today is Geeta Ramaseshan, an advocate at the Madras High Court. Ma'am, thank you for joining me today. To start off, can you explain this ruling and how it'll play out? I want to know how different it is from the divorce laws and proceedings that are already in place. The court has laid the point that the Supreme Court alone have the power to do complete justice, in the words of the court, to dissolve a marriage on the ground of irretrievable breakdown. Okay. Now, the concept of irretrievable breakdown of marriage as a ground for divorce is not there in the personal laws, except Islamic law in a different form, but it is not there in Hindu law, it's not there for Christians, and it's not there under the Special Marriage Act. Therefore, they have now said that if they feel that a marriage is dead, laying down certain parameters for the death of a marriage, and the case is before them, then they alone will have the power to dissolve the marriage on the ground of irretrievable breakdown, because that is not a statutory provision that is available to parties. <clears throat> but oh. having said that, I want to say that this uh, concept of you know dissolving the marriage by the Supreme Court, saying that the marriage has broken down irretrievably, has actually been there for a very long time. You know, and uh, however, in between there were a few judgments that said that. The courts do not have the power to dissolve a marriage on this ground when there, when there is no availability of such a relief in the statute. And hence, this matter has now been set at rest by the full bench of the Supreme Court. Okay, so can you explain what the existing grounds for divorce are and what would constitute as irretrievable damage to a marriage? There are many grounds on the basis of which marriages can be dissolved, okay? But if you were to take the main laws of Hindu law, Hindu, Christians, and the Special Marriage Act, the most common grounds on the basis of which cases are coming before the Supreme Court are cruelty, adultery, desertion, sometimes mental illness, okay? So now in these cases, you actually have got to prove what in law is called as a matrimonial wrong. That is, I have to prove the cruelty when I'm saying that I want my marriage dissolved on that ground. I have to prove the cruelty of the spouse. I have to prove the desertion, adultery, etc., etc. Therefore, this concept is what we call as a fault-finding basis for divorce. You know, I have to find a fault with the other spouse in order to walk out of a bad marriage. But when we are looking at irrevocable differences or irretrievable breakdown, 
which is there among many other, you know, which is there as a ground for divorce in the West, you are then saying the other party is not at fault or we are not bothered about the fault of the other party, but because of certain factors, we cannot get along and I want a divorce based on those differences. Now, if you ask me, um, see, both have their ups and downs. Now, if we move a divorce on the basis of irreconcilable differences, then I'm not making allegations. I am not required to bring in evidence. I am not required to, you know, subject the each other, subject myself as well as the spouse to cross-examination, laying down the life bare, you know, and to spare, to, to be scrutinized by third parties, who ultimately is going to judge whether I deserve the divorce or not. I mean, a judge is ultimately a third party, right? Whereas here, that's not the criteria. The court goes by the presumption that the marriage is dead. No point in making two people live. Having said that, uh, the, the concept is also, you know, uh, criticized. I mean, every concept is bound to be criticized. Now, that concept is criticized on the ground that even a person who has done something wrong can take advantage of the law and get the marriage dissolved very easily. Yeah. And in a scenario where the spouses are actually not very equal, you know, it always works to the advantage of the man. Can you elaborate on this? See, as a lawyer, I know for a fact that there are certain cases where we handle and I feel that, you know, if that was a ground of divorce, it would make things much easier for the spouses. But it is also a reality that if this, has, this is a form of divorce, then, you know, uh, men, especially in, um, you know, who, in rural areas with patriarchy, with so many other things into play, can easily move a court and say that, you know, uh, they don't want it along with their spouses. And therefore, the marriage needs to be resolved. That is, if this is a ground for divorce. What the Supreme Court has said in the judgment is, there have to be certain criteria: The length of the marriage, the uh, separation that need to be there for six years, the, the lack of cohabitation between the parties, children, their rights, custody, the rights of the spouse, uh, of the other spouse, education, their financial security, etc., which they say need to be the criteria to be considered in order that the marriage be dissolved by the Supreme Court. Again, not by the other courts in India. So these couples would have to go to the Supreme Court. I mean, how often does that actually happen? It doesn't happen at all. <laughs> if you live in Delhi, it's probably easier. Um, no, not all cases go up to the Supreme Court. See, the average trial time, no, you know, sometimes, as I told you, why I sometimes feel, but I also know the ground reality of what can happen, you know. The average time for a trial, if you're very lucky, which is unusual, but if you're very lucky, maybe two to three years, sometimes leading on even to 10 years. I know cases where the trial has, in, has gone on for 10 years at the trial stage. Then the other spouse may take the case up on appeal. Now, if the case is in a family court or if the case is in courts, in districts where there are family courts, all family courts are not there everywhere, then your right of appeal is to the high court. 
okay? Okay. Where again, you have minimum again three to four years. Then if you are in a position to take the matter up to the Supreme Court, so you're looking at almost maybe, you know, 10 years or so of litigation. If it is in places where there are no family courts, okay, so if you were to take um, uh, Chennai, for example, um, some other, many other regions that do not have family courts, then the case is filed in a sub-court. From there, it goes on appeal to the district court and then to the high court. So there is another appeal which takes a lot more time. So by sheer fatigue, you know, mm -hmm. uh, the litigation goes on. So, so then, again, yeah. only if somebody goes to the Supreme Court and if the Supreme Court is convinced, see, because and that both sides approach the court, if both sides approach the court and say that the marriage can be dissolved, then it is getting dissolved by consent. Hmm. That's a ground available, you know, by mutual consent. But when it goes to the Supreme Court and if it is a contentious litigation, one party says that the marriage has to be dissolved because the differences are irrevocable. The court has laid down those parameters. So it actually does not help most of the litigants in India. You mentioned men benefiting from this ruling, especially men from rural communities. So how exactly would they benefit or be impacted if the ruling can only really be put into effect by the Supreme Court? Is there maybe like a sort of trickle-down effect? See, okay, let's look at rural communities in India, okay? When you marry, you move out. Hmm. I mean, the wife moves out. And she moves to a different place. Okay, you're not always in the same city or same village. See, before that, can I say something? See, in 2011, if I'm not mistaken, there was a private member, there was a bill in parliament that was that wanted to introduce irrevocable differences as a form of divorce. Hmm. A bill was introduced in the parliament and women's groups at that time expressed concern that if this was to become law without actually addressing the economic rights that go with it, because you know in other systems of law you have irreconcilable differences but after that you have division of property. Every property that is purchased after marriage belongs jointly to the spouses. We don't have that law. And then there has to be differences. There has to be alimony, etc. Alimony, of course, is there for us. So that time there was an opposition saying that if this was going to be brought in as law, other factors have to be considered. Then somehow it was referred to a select committee and then it lapsed. So it was not as if this was not in discussion earlier precisely on this apprehension that it will make it very hard for women. So based off the data that we looked at, we saw that 30% of women who are in marriages are abused in one form or another, be it physical, emotional, or sexual. But then we see that only 1-4% to end up getting a divorce. So can you explain why there's such a wide discrepancy between the number of women who are facing forms of abuse and then the number of women who actually are getting out of these situations? You know, what are the things that are working against women from society, but also, you know, is there anything in the legal structure that's holding them back? I think society-wise, still very hard for a woman to come out of a marriage 
go to the court and get a divorce it's not easily acceptable there is no support system first of all then you have to be really financially independent to make that decision and even those women who are very financially independent you know on a comparative scale often find this decision very ha- hard especially when there are children now the, the there's one thing interesting which i wanted to uh, ask you about the statistics that you have sent mm-hmm. is that you have been looking at divorces right divorce and separation yeah and separation yeah yes. there are the other cases which are filed just for maintenance the women don't ask for divorce but they ask for maintenance for their for themselves and for their children now if you actually look at a case of that nature a marriage in such a situation is also broken down right because she is gone to court she's asking for maintenance she has not asked for divorce therefore um the number of cases that are filed for maintenance is actually high and that cuts across all strata of society now coming back to your uh, query you know a i think it's still very hard you know constantly one also hears this you know oh people are uh, rushing for divorce in the first instance and you know um people are just filing for divorces in the first instance etc but i'm asking you you know if you take let's take chennai for example 5000 odd cases filed in a year compared to what the population is is that does that show any increase hardly right. so you know right. um and um, so um and to decide on this is still very difficult even if you think it is a bad marriage your options you know are very hard so do women from more financially well off backgrounds you know do they have a higher divorce rate than poor women or do you see that women from poorer backgrounds maybe opt for a separation sort of situation instead because you know we hear so many stories of women who you know for example work as house help and they leave their husband because he's abusive or he's an alcoholic or whatever the case may be and they just have to get away from them not necessarily in the form of a divorce but you know a separation so is there a difference in the way that these women from different economic backgrounds go about their marriages if you look at say economically not so strong women like like the working class women from the working class such as the you know um house help and women working in the unorganized sectors etc and you'll often find in those situations that within their spouses they are also economically independent the spouse is spending money on alcohol the husband beats her up or assaults her she is also in that structure economically independent but that's that, that is i'm talking about the women who come to court okay but then their support system of ending a marriage may or may not be there ultimately in my experience i find that women who end the marriage or who are most quite content or come to the court for a divorce have a strong natal family support system it's hard for them you know they do rely i mean we they still do women we still do rely on our families to support us it's a very 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 few women who take the step of not being taking their support at all and even today 
you know, women in their 40s or whatever age, is when they come to meet a lawyer, they still come with a family member. Have you noticed any changes in the number of women looking for a divorce or seeking divorce across age groups? Do, you know, younger or older women have a harder time getting a divorce? Despite all that people say about uh, uh, divorces increasing, etc., unless the family supports a woman, most women don't take that decision. Yeah, it's very... I don't know sometimes how they say divorce is for the asking. Everybody say, everybody thinks it's not so. I mean, even if divorce is for the asking, when a woman feels she doesn't want, you know, to be in that marriage, why should she be forced into There are two kinds of prejudices you see. Let me share that with you. There is a great prejudice against a senior woman. There is a, there is a prejudice against age. So if you, for example, are an older woman and you have decided to end your marriage, and, uh, you know, then taken this decision, the reaction of everyone is, having lived with him for so long, why do you want to end this marriage? Now, there is also a concept in law called condonation. That is, you have to say that you did not condone the behavior of the spouse. Say when you're filing a case for cruelty, especially, let's say, mental cruelty, and you have lived in the marriage for many years, you will obviously say that all these years, I, this happened to me. Anybody would think like that, right? All these years, this happened to me, but I put it, put up with it because for my children, mm. right? Yeah. The moment you say you put up with it, the understanding of law is that you have condoned the behavior of these spouse. Okay. And condonation disentitles you from having your divorce. It's actually a very archaic concept, this whole notion of condonation uh, that, you know, if you have condoned the cruelty. I have had cases where just on that ground of condonation, the case has been dismissed because she has been in a marriage for 20, 25 years and she just stayed on. So the whole, the way in which the court looked at it was, the way in which the cross-examination also went was, you stayed for so long. You therefore decided to stay with him, you know, and taken on the route of condonation. So even though there was cruelty, the court the courts have held that, but you condoned the behavior, therefore you're not entitled to divorce. So to me, this is a discrimination on age. Refusal to see what makes older women come out of a marriage. And the fact that when an older woman comes out of a marriage, her decision is very, very strong and her decision has been taken after a lot of thought that has gone into it. It doesn't look at it from this feminist you know, way at all. Yeah. And once you're older, you have a little more financial stability. Maybe you have more authority over whatever it is that you want to do, places to go, live. You don't have... Sometimes to- your children support you, yeah. you know. Yeah. They grow up, they are employed, and they say, don't tolerate this, come away. So what is the financial burden that a woman would have to take on to go through with divorce proceedings? Of course, we have society stopping women from one end, but what about the litigation itself? The duration of it, like you said, could go on for several years. So how much money would she have to set aside for this process and how feasible is it? First thing, when a woman chooses to leave, maybe, I always advise her to have a financial plan before she leaves even. Because A, to secure her jewelry and to secure her most valuable assets like certificates, etc. 
And then the financial plan, because even if you go to the court and ask for maintenance, it's going to take a while. I advise people to have a financial plan for at least eight months or so. Unless, of course, the situation is so violent that, you know, she's unable to live. Then, of course, she has to decide on that. And we do, you know, have to look at other support systems, uh, women's groups and other, uh, you know, organizations that can offer her support. Number one. Number two, where do you go? See, even though we do have the Domestic Violence Act, the Domestic Violence Act gives the right to the woman to stay in her shared household. She can get a restraining order against her husband from, you know, coming into the house, etc., etc. Vast majority of women do not want to continue staying in the house. And it's pretty understandable. So when you look at the Domestic Violence Act, many of the uh, reliefs that they would be claiming is actually an alternate accommodation, financial, you know, security, maintenance, etc. Living in the same roof and getting a restraining order, there are, of course, it's not that people are not filing, but comparatively it's less because, you know, once you decide you want to leave the house, no one wants to stay there. So the, this is the backup plan that I say people must have. Yeah. See, I mean, uh, there are very reasonable lawyers. And then, of course, the Legal Services Authority is meant to offer you, you know, legal, uh, good legal services. Litigation expenses is something else. I have not even factored that in our discussion now. But just that you need to have this much backup plan. I wonder, you know, do women, are women even thinking of divorce as an option? I mean, we have 30% of women who are facing some kind of abuse. Now we have this judgment, this new ground for divorce where women can leave without having to list a specific reason or wrongdoing. But are women even thinking this way? When do they sort of reach that point where they say, okay, divorce is my only option? See, I think most of the time when there is violence, you just think the violence must stop. Then you think you don't want to be in that situation at all. Now, ending the marriage, there's so much of heavy investment in India. The expenses incurred, you know, with the loans that your family members take for the wedding. And then sometimes your own jewelry is kept, is controlled by your husband's family. So I think all these make it more fearful for women. Then, you know, other factors, like, for example, if you have sisters and brothers who are yet to be married, then, you know, there is this uh, feeling that if I go back, people will ask, what has happened to your daughter? Why has she come back? You know, those are very realistic uh, fears that people have. So that those concerns are sometimes overwhelm the a woman not wanting to end the marriage, even if they want to, even if they feel that they don't want to stay. These uh, external factors are sometimes very compelling for them to stay on. Now, see, I'm only sharing with you my legal strategies. People may have different strategies to do about. So I always uh, I tell a woman, don't make, if you can't make up your mind what you want to do, just let it be. Start, you know, start doing other things and then you come back. Sometimes she's brought in by others, you know, family members. She's not in a position to make up her mind. And I said, let it be. When you think you can make up your mind, you come. And then as when we suggest them sometimes to uh, counseling, provided, of course, the husband is willing to meet her in that. 
and for various other you know to various other options then when she decides sometimes sometimes to work on the marriage sometimes to not work and children are a big factor that think twice before they want to leave a marriage because you never know no how it impacts them and you don't know how it will be held and then you do you don't know whether you can afford their education how long it will take for the spouse to get you you know to give you the money for their schools uh, that's a very major factor that I, that would actually make many women think twice before they decide to break a marriage what is the west doing differently legally you know societally we know that the west is very different from india but is there anything in their legal structure that we maybe don't have or aren't implementing in the same way that's resulting in far higher divorce rates over there compared to india see the west their uh, their uh, grounds for divorce they had adultery they had various other grounds as a ground for divorce and they changed that law into the breakdown into the breakdown concept where you know we call it as the breakdown theory of divorce you know we have different theories of divorce the one the ones that we have in india is called the fault finding theory where you have to prove a matrimonial wrong and the west of course is now into the irreconcilable irreconcilable differences breakdown theory so you don't have to make any allegation now there of course you see um, can't get along with someone okay move the court divorce comes easy okay now whether that is a reason for higher rate of divorce i don't know you know i, I can't make that statement at all uh, because social cultural norms are different but uh what they have done see what happens there is if you are in a marriage for a short while um the relief that you get in terms of your uh, alimony etc is much less okay if you are in a marriage for a very long time then your contribution to the home is always looked into not factored in but it is understood that you are in a marriage for a very long time then the investments that are done within the marriage the properties that are purchased all that are divided into half in whether it is in one spouse's name or not they have the community division of property so that is the way in which their the economics of a divorce are factored in now we don't have that process at all now even if we had that as a law how many families or how many people would have a division of community property i want to touch on custody over children because clearly that's a major factor when it comes to a woman's decision on what she wants to do with her marital situation so what is that process like and when the judge is determining who gets custody over the child how much of a role does a parent's financial situation play well every case of custody varies of course you know we all know that and uh, most of the time uh, custody cases are surviving on entry models uh, when one parent has the primary custody and the other parent then seeks visitation rights and it goes on now uh, basically the uh, overall in most cases the custody continues to remain with the mother uh, in india we don't have a concept of joint custody unless both parties are willing to you know accept that couples do make a conscious decision of uh, wanting to share the custody then they do enter into an elaborate memorandum of understanding okay as to how it that should be 
but otherwise custody remains with one parent the other parent gets various processes of visiting rights how does it work or how does it play itself out i essentially think that the dominant parent who has the child has a greater control you know and uh, in many instances can influence the child as against the other parent mm. but sometimes there are very genuine instances by one parent is not very comfortable sending the child to the other parent and of course the other parent also see custody becomes not just a dispute between the spouses it also becomes a dispute between the families you know so the the grandparents also start playing a major role into the way in which the child is uh, the child has to be approached etc so in many ways it's very it's one of the saddest battles you know that you can see in the way in which it is playing itself out now more and how does court determine custody see technically now there is a shift in thinking by looking at uh, the right uh, by looking at custody as a right of the child to have access to both parents mm-hmm. earlier it used it used to be the parental right over the child but now it's reversing and it's looking at the best interests of the child in terms of uh, you know what is the best interest of the child in terms of having access to the other parent also so you know the for example the supreme court has said that there is a child that the child may like something but the best interest has to go beyond that so say for example if a child may say i don't want to go to one parent but uh, you can see that if it is said out of gen, out of the reason of fear or for some other you know behavior on the part of the parent misbehavior on the part of the parent that is something that is understandable but if it is stated because the dominant parent has influenced the child to say so before the judge then you have to look at the best interests of the child namely that the child also have access to the other parent okay. the court can examine the child but the court can go beyond what the child says to the judge so it focuses far more on the behavior and the dynamic of the parent with the child and the spouse rather than the parent you know the mother generally you know her financial situation no ours is not a situation where you know the court will say one parent is better off therefore send the child mm-hmm. to that parent no if the other if the mother is not well off the method of approach is that the father should provide for her and the child Hmm. and have access to see the child okay. not that the father is more well off therefore send the child there no. it doesn't look at that way at, at it that way now so just to sort of circle back to the judgment if a couple wants to get a divorce on the grounds of irretrievable damage does just one person have to say that the marriage isn't working and that they want to end it or does it have to be mutually agreed on well if both spouses want to divorce hmm. then you file a petition by mutual consent okay a mutual consent divorce can be granted within 6 months hmm. have two hearings one hearing when you file and the second hearing when the case is over the court is going to ask you have you made up your mind do you still want a divorce etc and you say yes you want a divorce now 
in a mutual consent if there are issues of maintenance custody visitation etc all can be discussed mm. and so all are if agreed upon put as terms in the divorce okay then you have the other form of divorce that i told you about which is the common form that you know you uh, file a petition for divorce you make out all these allegations the other spouse comes and makes out various other allegations against you these cases before going for trial is today going for mediation during the process of mediation all these larger issues are discussed by the mediator with the parties and if during the process of mediation the matter can be resolved either by getting back together or ending the marriage but in a consensual manner the matter is then settled before the mediator and parties come back to court and file a mutual consent petition but some cases don't get resolved through a settlement process so some cases then become a full fledged trial that the court has to decide then the court has to decide on the basis of evidence whether the person who has asked for divorce on the grounds of cruelty desertion adultery etc etc has been able to prove her case so with this ruling unless you are a couple who you know one of whom wants to get a divorce for no specific reason other than you know they just don't want to be with this person anymore and then they manage to take the case to the supreme court that's the only way that this ruling would sort of come to fruition see it's like this you know there are situations where there you just don't want you maybe you want to move out of the marriage okay mm. and it's not as if women many women do feel that way right mm. they may not have anything much against the husband in terms of the law i mean you may not like you may have you know you do have various other factors but it may not come within the box of cruelty or desertion right so in terms of getting materials of evidence but you would still want to end the marriage if your spouse is not willing for a mutual consent you then will have to make out certain grounds to get a divorce on the examples that i gave you goes to court maybe there the case is a strategic tool the litigation becomes a strategic tool to actually see whether you know the issue can be settled if you, if it works out if it goes through all these processes and then you know sometimes um if the other spouse says okay i'll agree for a divorce but let's settle it on certain terms fine if not it has to go to the trial court from the trial court to the high court and if you can afford you go to the supreme court and not all cases go to the supreme court uh, somita not all parties can afford a litigation there so ultimately given all we've discussed does this ruling end up empowering women at all to walk away from a marriage that they are not happy no, in no 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 not at all how much of an impact does this ruling actually have only if you go to the supreme court it hardly has an impact no? and there too it says it it is of course it's good that it has laid down certain parameters on what constitutes a breakdown but uh, then you know that also depends on looking at the materials of evidence before you right how many years of separation has there been any cohabitation between both parties 
what happens if one spouse say yes we have had and the other spouse says no no you know, 6 years you know they have been separated for a period of 6 years or litigation pending for 6 years it doesn't really uh, it doesn't really help in that sense it doesn't empower it's actually in that sense nothing new this has always been there now the supreme court has given a clarification and has laid down criteria as to what constitutes irrevocable differences so it's it's not very helpful in the, if you really you know uh, if for example the court had uh, given had made this a law which they can't make of course but if the high courts had been empowered with this then it would have been a little different because you know we have cases that come up to the high court and are pending for 10 years i mean 10 years of litigation over a marriage is really a sorry state of affairs it's hard it's unpleasant it, you know it just uh, the individual just withers away that's it for this week's episode but i'll be back soon to unpack the next big data story You can listen to this podcast on all major streaming platforms including Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. And as always, you can check out all our other data stories at thehindu.com/data. Thanks for listening.